Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest-hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, as the NBA playoffs are in full swing, where does the NBA rank in American pop culture today, and how has that changed over time? In the last several decades, the NBA has undergone several major brand changes, and we are here to talk about all of them. My name is Chad Wiley, and with me, as always, is John Nekrasov. And John, how are you doing this week? Chad, I'm doing so good. I... Keeping up with my promise from last week, I'm fully caught up for our conversation on Moon Knight. I watched not one, but two movies this past weekend, which is unprecedented for me almost. And I also re-downloaded Minecraft yesterday. And I don't know. I'm just I'm just kind of living my best life over here. Just Are you? immersed in the culture. Immersed in popular culture and also Minecraft, which I guess used to be popular culture. And I don't know if it still counts as popular it culture. It still is but in, some, for some, in some people's hearts. Yes. It's a wonderful game. I forgot how addicting it is. I have had to. Um, I, I. I'm sorry to say this, Megan. I don't. I really don't want to put you on blast, but I've had to share TV time this weekend because Megan has been watching the uh, Netflix reality TV show Ultimatum. I don't even know what that is. It's. It's like a. It's a. It's a dating show where you come into the show with a significant other, mm-hmm. and then you're supposed to, for three weeks, break up with them and move in with someone else who's on the show and decide if you want to date them instead. And then you go back to your original spouse, or not spouse, your original partner. And at the end, you have to decide if you want to get engaged to the person you came with, date someone else, or leave single. Wow. This is giving me flashbacks to back when like we used to all like there'd be a divide at the champion where like half the office would be like deeply engaged in the bachelor and, yeah. and the other half would be at war with the idea of the bachelor existing. So from a production value, this is a step below the bachelor. Okay. It's, it's a Netflix original produced by the same people who do like love is blind. I don't know if you've heard of love is blind. I've heard of it. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's definitely a step below in production value to like the traditional network dating shows. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Megan enjoys it. I have watched it. It's it's a time. It happens. <laughs> We're gonna be doing a review of that show from now on. In this, we could every week. I can. Podcast. No, no, I absolutely not. Yeah, I, it's Sorry, not Megan. something that I would choose to watch. But I'm happy to support my wife in her interests. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're this what's happening. <laughs> but I did find time to watch uh, Moon Knight. I Wonderful. will not have as much time this weekend because tonight I'm actually going to my brother's uh, concert. His oh, acapella excellent. group at NC State is doing a uh, a recital. Their all male acapella group, which my brother is the president of, so very we're nice. all going to support. We're super excited. Shout out to Eric. Yeah, Eric's a very good singer, so we're we're excited for that. And that's the that's pod, all for the me. The pod gives Eric his full support. Our good full job. support. Yeah, good yep. job, Eric. <laughs> well, John, do you want to jump into Moon Knight, and then we'll get I think into it's time. the sports? Yes. Okay, so yes, we're going to talk Knight. about Moon Knight episodes three and four. Two weeks ago, we Spoiler talked about alert. episodes one and two, but so we are caught up with the Moon Knight so far as of through this weekend and up until Wednesday. Mm-hmm. John, I know that you had a particular uh, piece of slander toward a moment in episode three that you really disliked, um, but let's let's stick with the positives first. And I felt like episode four, <laughs> episode four was a was a great episode of television. It was. It genuinely was. I just watched it. It was well paced. I didn't lose focus at any point during the episode. It had some really interesting twists. In particular, again, spoiler alert, we're going to spoil everything. The twist into the asylum, Mm -hmm. I thought, was 
fantastic and really well done and brought us I had a complaint uh, kind of going through episode three that it kind of felt like the real core of the show to me was kind of Mark's Mark slash Stevens like psychological battle almost and it felt like that had really been developed as like the core of the show and three didn't really like play off it very well and I was like I hope it I hope we stay focused on that because I feel like the core of the show is really him internally and episode four really felt like it like hit all those things in a way that like even it hadn't before I loved I loved episode four yeah I really loved okay things I loved about episode four the Alexander the Great yeah, that was, was amazing. That was yes. great. That was good lore, good history. Because the mm-hmm. fact that he like was it like was although he was Macedonian and was over the Grecian Empire, he was considered like, also a pharaoh. They like he was all into Egyptian culture. Like right. that was a great historical touch. And then the, like you mentioned, the the sudden pivot to the asylum was a was a twist that I didn't entirely see coming. I, didn't I always knew that there was a chance that like this whole thing was not exactly real, or like that the reality we were seeing might not have been real just because of how many different personalities he had. But I didn't expect it to come right there. I didn't expect what it ended up being. Um, I, it was a huge surprise. I thought it was played off very, very well. And then in that asylum scenes, you see all of these little Easter eggs that mm-hmm. that that, indi- that, uh, that symbolize everything that happened in the previous three episodes, whether it's the, the, the painting of the Alps or the fact that Arthur Harrow is there and the girlfriend is there as another inmate. The, the actual uh, Moon Knight uh, action figure he has. Everything about it was just wonderful. And I don't know if the asylum scene is all in his head, whether that's real and all of the Egyptian stuff was in his head. The whole thing is just crazy. And I'm super, super interested in, in finding out what is the dream and what is the reality, which is which. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, the natural conclusion, since we have something like four episodes of this show left, is that probably the asylum is some form of dream. Two left. Oh, there's only two left. It's a six. It's a six. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, we're coming okay. down to it pretty quick here. Okay, we're coming down to it. So, I revised my statement. Nevertheless, I would still venture a guess that it's not all in his head, right? In terms of the development of the show, that seems like a reasonable guess. It would be interesting if he he just is actually just a crazy Marvel character that's not actually real. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that would be a very interesting twist that I would yeah, not would. see coming, but it seems unlikely given that I think what's interesting is that moment where Mark and Steven are in different bodies at the end of the show of episode four mm-hmm. is interesting to me because all of a sudden you're like, what is, what is going on here? If, if he's currently inside his head and like Harrow's like somehow mind controlling him, it would, could make sense that he is, like, projecting himself in his own mind in a way that he wouldn't be able to in real life. Um, that's the only way I can imagine that happening. But we also have a clue that there's a third person hanging around somewhere. We do. Yeah, that is confirmed. Right. I mean, it's confirmed that two different ways. Right, there's, there's that sarcophagus. There's sarcophagus. Yeah. And also in episode three, both right. of them deny killing. Doing something. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, I didn't do that. Oh, wait, I didn't do that. So there is a mm-hmm. third person. Right, um, and we have. There's no identity. I'm sure the identity being revealed will be very important. But yeah, my my guess, if I was just gonna guess, is that I think that the, everything in the asylum is a dream, mm-hmm. not just because the set, like the setting, looks more surreal, but also like the giant hippopotamus just showing up at the end. Like that's I don't know. I don't know. My that, guess yeah. is that the asylum, like, is that he's like unconscious and like dying of his 
of his gunshot wound that Harrow mm-hmm. gave him in the uh, in the tomb of Alexander the Great, and that this we might start episode five as well, still in this asylum dream world where right. he can inhabit two different bodies and where everything looks more surreal and where talking and walking hippopotamuses just just roll up which is fantastic and i think it it shows that marvel this show for me shows that marvel really can deviate from the formula when it wants to because this is nothing like both this and loki are unlike any marvel content we've seen and i think the beginning point. of wandavision too Mm-hmm. Like one yeah, division kind of deviated three entire a little bit episodes that didn't do anything for the story. Like there were right. three episodes that were just a fake reality that one division cre- that Wanda created, mm-hmm. and then they did it as a sit- as sitcoms. Like right. Marvel has shown an ability more than really any other major studio right now to like really challenge the mold of what fandom storytelling is, and to do like to really require the viewer to be patient. Not everything is going to be have giant implications not everything is even going to be real like we're going to have whole settings that are just psychological and fake and just there for the character development and marvel has shown an ability to kind of like sit tight and let things play out at a slower pace than other studios have yeah i I will push back on that a little bit in that a lot of these shows that have been coming out have felt a little bit formulaic to me but i'm glad to see these examples of shows that they 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 can deviate yeah yeah falcon and hawkeye are both pretty cookie cutter yeah, Falcon, yeah. I was like, can something please happen that's I'm not predicting four episodes before? But this is a different show. And I'm really I really enjoyed it. The only my only true complaint, I do need to get this out on the air. There's a moment where in episode three, where Mark is talking to another one of the um whatever they're called, the avatars, and they're talking about finding some kind of dude sarcophagus. And she looks at him and says the sarcophagus was last seen being sold on the black market. So you might want to start there. And I sat there for a moment, dumbfounded at what I had just heard. As if you could just kind of like saunter on down to your local like black market and just be like, hey, have you seen this sarcophagus recently? <laughs> it was like a minor it's like thing. The black market is like an Etsy shop. You just Yeah, exactly. You just kind of like walk on over. You're like, log on. You're like, hey, guys, I'm looking for the local sarcophagus dealer. <laughs> Where can I find him? So anyway, that was just a minor quibble. But I was like, did you actually just unironically script that? It was kind of painful. Speaking of Marvel content with major and minor quibbles, John. (laughs) It's time. Chad saw Morbius yesterday. He actually saw it. Okay, before we get into Morbius, I want to defend why I saw Morbius. (laughs) There's a very specific context into which I went to see Morbius. And that context is, one, I have the Alamo season pass, which means Mm -hmm. I can see one movie every day for free. So it didn't cost me a lot of money to see it. That's nice. And two, I had a two-hour window and I needed a movie in the late afternoon that was under two hours which was only Morbius that's all okay so now, okay, I, again, now you can, again I said this before I'll say it again you could have spent that two hours doing something else that's a bad argument but you did choose to go see it so we I do want to know some straight from the horse's mouth of someone who has actually seen the masterpiece of terribleness that is the the wonderful world of Morbius verse. How was it? It was horrible. <laughs> Some of the directorial and storytelling choices were just frankly baffling. Let me let me let me say that I went into it with low expectations 
as low of expectations as I possibly could have, and my low expectations were not met. Like, it didn't mm. clear the low bar that I had given. That's tough. The, the, the movie was so uninteresting that a major part of the trailer for the movie, which was the appearance of Michael Keaton's uh, tombs as, you know, Vulture, mm-hmm. was part of the trailer, and it was not even in the actual movie. It was really? only in the stingers. And the the movie was so not funny as compared to a movie like Venom, which has its challenges but is genuinely hilarious. Because Tom Venoms. Hardy is goaded. Right. This movie was so not funny that the only good joke that was in the trailer was then taken out of the movie. The only good joke in the trailer was when Morbius, like, scares a person and is like, I'm Venom. And he's like, just kidding, I'm Dr. Michael Morbius. And that was like... They took not, that out? They took that out, yeah. No! That's mm-hmm. that's that's devastating. Yeah, it, the whole thing just was was bad. I there was like the CGI of the faces was bad. The for some reason, whenever they were in their um, in their vampire form, whenever they would start jumping around, there'd be like this like apparating smoke coming off their bodies, like they're like apparating in Harry Potter, mm-hmm. but they're not like spirit. Like they're not. They're supposed to have like real bodies. They're not like turning into like. A, a smoke show like they're still people but mm-hmm. they had these like and and the smoke matches whatever they're wearing so there's a scene where he's wearing like an orange jumpsuit and so there's just like these like orange streams of like smoke following him wherever he goes what <laughs> the movie was horrible I gave it half a star just for Matt Smith being Matt Smith in the movie because I like Matt Smith and he was right that's was, the that's the um, the Doctor Who guy right Doctor Who he uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he was also um in the first couple seasons of The Crown, as young Prince Philip, he will. I be, need to see that. He yes. will. Be, he will be in the uh, House of Dragons show, the Game of Thrones prequel show, coming mm-hmm. out in August as well. So he's he's okay. a great actor. So half star out of five. Half star out of five. Okay. Um, set set a new low bar for superhero movies that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Granted, I've I've heard the only people I've heard that is worse is New Mutants, which I haven't seen. It's on my list because I'm watching all the X Men movies, so maybe New Mutants is worse, like literally zero stars or also a half star. But it was it was not a good time. Um, That's amazing and horrible at the same time. Yeah. Okay. I two other thoughts I had real quickly. The fourth the actor with the fourth most screen time is someone I only know from Fast and Furious, which is pretty which bad. Is, which is pretty bad. And then lastly, like the Stinger. At the end, which spoiler was basically just Michael Keaton saying, "Hey, we should find more people like us and team up to fight Spider-Man." So, like, let's just—I mean, you could have just said a—you could have just released a press release statement saying the Sinister Six are coming, and that would have done essentially the same thing as the entire uh, Morbius Stinger did. So, yeah. See, I just like to also add two things. One, so I saw Blade Runner twenty forty nine two nights ago. Jared Leto also makes an appearance in that movie and is just as Lido? creepy. Isn't it Leto? I think it's Leto. Everyone I know says Leto. Leto, okay. Jared, not, Jared not Leto. We'll just go with Leto. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. Um, it wouldn't be the first time that as a homeschooler I mispronounce things based on reading them. <laughs> um, no, but I saw him. He appeared in Blade Runner as an equally creepy character, if not more creepy than what I know about him in Morbius. Um, I've just decided he's a creepy person um, and also just give a brief shout out to myself um, who wasn't really conscious of Jared Leto until this year basically as a person I don't think I'd seen him in anything he had kind of 
merged, quite frankly, with Jay Leno in my mind. <laughs> like, I didn't think they were the same person. So but you like, haven't seen, like, the their 2016 names uh, Suicide Squad? No. Okay. No, I still have not seen Suicide, seen Suicide Squad. It just didn't, it never appealed to me. It wasn't something that interested me. Morbius does not interest me. You know, except as a, you know, a, I guess, example of human failure. You know, similar to, like, the Titanic. I think it's roughly on that level. It probably cost about as much as the Titanic. Yeah, I honestly. described it as, to, as we transition to sports, I described it as the John Wall of uh, movies. Mm-hmm. John Wall, the the NBA point guard, who basically like gets paid, like most overpaid to, to least contribution. Okay. Uh, okay, NBA player that I could think of was John Wall. No offense to John Wall. He just makes a lot of money. He doesn't really play anymore. He's just not very good. So that was that was the contribution I made. That was the, the comparison I made, I mean. John, do you want to transition to some sports as we're about a third of the way through the podcast today? Um, yeah, I just like to briefly say, yeah, the Lego Batman movie had an eighty million dollar um, budget, and Morbius had a seventy-five million dollar budget, and the Lego Batman movie is literally like fifty times the movie that Morbius is. So it's just a catastrophic failure. Yeah, the only excuse I can come up with is like if if I had seen the 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 production budget for Sony and they said we're giving 95% of our budget to Spider-Man No Way Home and then 5% to Morbius and the Morbius movie came out this the way it did that would have been understandable but I don't think that it was that that's that less yeah it was not that low budget compared to No Way Home so but yes sports sports John uh, you wanted to give a, just a, a brief uh, memo about our conversation last week with the Washington Commanders and just kind of you know, do our journalistic job to p- portray both sides equally and fairly. Mm-hmm. And the, the commanders have made some news since the last time we talked. Yeah. So basically, just just briefly, the Washington commanders sent a letter to Congress, I believe, saying that um, just denying all the allegations that their former VP put forward in the emails and stuff that he put before the congressional committee. Um, so it's important to note that it's important to note that I believe from my understanding from something I read, um, I would need to fact check this more. Um, as of right now, they'd be going against league rules, but I don't think it's necessarily actually government fraud that they're being alleged against right now. So that's also important to note. But they've also denied all allegations. So Yeah, we'll continue to monitor the story. John, we're going to spend today talking about the NBA. And we want to talk Shout about... Out to Chad. Really, the, the the broad history of the NBA, but I wanted to start with a current event, mm-hmm. and that current event does date back to the 1980s. But and it's the HBO Max show Winning Time, which is a show that I've been watching. I don't necessarily recommend it. It does have HBO's uh, standard of explicit content and does push that to the limits. Um, but the show is produced and executive executive produced, written, and the first episode was directed by Adam McKay. Famous director who did Don't Look Up, The Big Short, Vice. It's very much in tune with his style. And I think most people involved with television have really enjoyed the show. It's been a good amount of nostalgia of the 1980s Lakers, starting with Magic Johnson's rookie season. Um, The characters have been compelling. We've seen John C. Riley as Jerry Buss. We've seen, um, you know, people like Jason Segel as Paul Westhead. Um, Quincy Isaiah plays Magic Johnson. And the show has been, a, from all I understanding, a big hit, a big success, and people have really liked it. But who haven't liked it 
are many of the people whose real lives are being portrayed. Mm-hmm. And right. this, uh, the show is loosely based on the book called Showtime by Jeff Perlman, which details the kind of the decade of the 80s with the Los Angeles Lakers. Mm-hmm. But the show has also taken its own liberties and added things even from the book. And so the first understanding that I had that people involved in the, in the storytelling who didn't like the show was when Jerry West actually wrote a letter, his, his legal team wrote a letter to HBO demanding a retraction and an apology for his portrayal in the show. He said that he was, you know, being uh, portrayed wrongly, that he was being like slanderously used by, to, to just be a character foil. You know, in the show, he's seen heavily drinking, just uh, having depression, throwing trophies, just constantly in a drunkenness and anger. And he's alleging that this was very, very far from reality. And several other people involved in it have written letters supporting that statement, including Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who mm-hmm. wrote an incredible essay on his Substack account that details, he sat down and watched the show and just details all of his frustrations. And essentially, I don't want to monologue here too much, John, but essentially what he says is that each character was kind of just boiled down to a st- an over to an exaggeration of one of their character traits. Mm-hmm. And that it was just not an, a, a nuanced or an accurate or or a two-dimensional or three-dimensional portrayal of any of the characters involved. He mm-hmm. also just complains that one is just it's just not funny. Uh, the, the jokes haven't been hitting. It feeds in a lot of uh, misogyny and sexualization that he d- denies were actually part of the the actual truth. And he just he viewed it as a gross distortion of reality. I actually want to, if I can pull up, I want to read one paragraph from it. Here's what Kareem writes. I'll start with the bland characterization. The characters are crude stick figure representations that resemble real people the way Lego Han Solo resembles Harrison Ford. They are caricatures, not characters. Amusement park portraits that emphasize one particular feature to amplify your appearance, but never touching the essence. The result of using caricatures instead of fully developed characters is that the plot becomes frenetic melodrama, sensationalized invented moments to excite the senses but reveal nothing deeper. And you could argue that, well, like melodrama and sensationalism is the point of television and mm-hmm. particularly the point of HBO. But when you're dealing Fair. with real people's lives and, and Kareem also mentioned that these are people who are still alive. Mm-hmm. You know, these are people who, whose, whose reputations, whose legacies are still being written. They're still online. They're still alive. You know, Kareem is still running his children's foundation. And so, um, yeah, his, he, I think a lot of people have had a lot of frustrations with the show. Objectively, it is a very, very good show in my opinion, but I think that these are concerns that should be taken seriously. Yeah, well, we've talked about, about the whole process of both creating sports reality TV and filming documentaries. We talked about it a lot with, um, with The Last Dance. Um, and we've also talked about it in regards to the dramatization of sports movies and such. And, you know, it, it is whenever you make a piece of artwork about currently living athletes, right? You're going to ruffle feathers. Certain people will agree with your portrayal and other people won't. Uh, if you don't consult the athletes, then that there's an even bigger issue, right? Which it doesn't seem like they consulted them. I don't know how much they did, but it doesn't seem like they did, at least not to a degree that was particularly meaningful. You know, that obviously runs the risk of kind of a he said, she said kind of situation where it's like, where are you getting these accounts from? You know, and if the whole organization doesn't really agree with your portrayal, then it is kind of an interesting situation. You know, I understand 
I don't know much about about the actual background of the Lakers and that kind of circumstance in terms of like who's necessarily right there or where the book writer got his information. But it has been an interesting thing to watch unfold. I don't know if you had any thoughts about, you know, as someone with more background, like about whether you think it feels accurate from your perspective. Well, I think the one of the one of the reasons why this cease and desist letter, this this apology demand is so interesting is that the book Showtime by Jeff Perlman is is not disputed. And right. Kareem also mentioned in his letter that actually this is a distortion of the book as well. Gotcha. It's not like they were it's not like the show is being consistent to the source and the source was wrong. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. They're saying that they're actually deliberately going against the spirit and and some of the stories that were in the actual source material as mm-hmm. much as as much as the show is based on this book. And I think it's only going to become more interesting seeing that contrast because at the end of his letter, Kareem writes that the Lakers are currently in production of a 10 episode documentary series with mm-hmm. the participation of everyone involved that's going to premiere on Hulu this summer. And so once that comes out, we're going to see a direct contradiction to some of the things mm-hmm. in this show in the actual documentary being produced by the team with the participation of everyone involved, be it Jeannie Buss, Kareem, Magic, and Jerry West as well. So right. it'll be interesting, interesting to see what happens. Because we we've talked before about the, kind of the battle between sports team narratives versus the journalism media's narratives about what's happening in the sports world. And often often the sports sports journalists are attempting to expose something that teams are trying to cover up, you know, which it does happen. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting in this kind of circumstance where, you know, HBO's goal is not to, like, uncover the truth, right? It's entertainment. Their, their, their goal is to entertain, you know. And so when you're, when you're putting up not, you know, a factual narrative, but your own kind of distortion of reality to try to draw in viewers. I think that does kind of raise a moral question of like, well, is that is that right to be drawing on these characters' reputations, as all the players have been saying, clearly, simply for your own viewership? Um, and I think that's a valid question worth asking. Yeah, so I, I think I'm going to have a lot more to say about this when I, when I watch the documentary. Yeah, um, there sure. actually there's another documentary called about Magic Johnson on Apple TV that's coming out. I saw that Barack Obama's interviewed in that. I'm going to watch that one as well. But I think this is something that I want to come back to later on in the year when we have that comparison. In the meantime, let's take a quick break here, and we're going to have a lot more to talk about the the 70s and 80s NBA as well as the present day NBA in our broad history of the branding of the National Basketball Association. And we're going to talk about that right after this break. And we are back with the big story this week, and we want to dive into the NBA's brand development. And you know, this is a this is a topic that has come up lately with the Showtime, uh, with the Winning Time HBO Max show. It's come up recently with a new book called Blood in the Garden about the 1990s New York Knicks. And John, I think let's just let's just start in chronological order. You know, a lot of people, especially a lot of people our age, wouldn't know this, but there was a time not not so long ago when the NBA was not just unpopular, but a pariah of popular culture, and it had a lot of issues and troubles. And you know, if 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 we had grown up in the 1970s, we would have had a very different impression of the NBA than we would today, obviously. 
Yeah, I was actually I was just reading about this at work. Actually, kind of we've had some like history of the NBA stories that have been running as kind of like it's the it's the what the the seventy fifth anniversary yep. mm-hmm. of the NBA this year. Yeah, um, so I've been reading articles every so often at work uh, as I'm editing them, and I was reading about you know this backstory of the NBA that I had no idea even existed, and so I thought it might be cool to kind of hear Chad's thoughts basically on the history of the NBA. You know it. I can talk about it a little bit from, you know, kind of the present, but I thought it would be cool to kind of take a look back at, you know, these eras in history where, you know, the NBA really, in my mind, interestingly enough, you know, is maybe the foremost sports brand in, you know, in the world right now as a league. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was not like that even 20 years ago, you know, um, and most definitely not 50 years ago. So I think it's a it's an interesting case of a league having serious problems in figuring out its brand. Yeah, so I mean, if we went back to like the 1960s, right? That's a time when the NBA is just just kind of getting started, but the reason why the NBA is not super popular then is because there's no competition. Right? right? There there's one great player, his name is Bill Russell. He played for the Celtics, and the Celtics won all the championships. Literally, all of them did in Will, the 60s. Did Will, did, where did Will Chamberlain play? Cuz he was also very good, wasn't he? Yeah, so there was Wilt Chamberlain who played for the the Sixers and later for the Lakers. But in terms of dominance, there was one team, mm-hmm. and it was the Celtics. Um, you know, I saw I saw a funny interview on First Take where uh, a guy was defending Bob Cousy, who was a point guard back then, and JJ Redick, the former NBA player from who went to Duke. He said, "Yeah, uh, Bob Cousy was being guarded by uh, firemen and policemen." Like, like so. There's, there's this image of the 1960s that is present today that there really there just wasn't like competition and you know there were a few great athletes but really like you and I could have played NBA basketball given our our build and our whatever so like I guarantee I could not have but (laughs) (laughs) that's fair that's fair um and then we get to the 70s and that's kind of when you start to hear the names that you would recognize today and that kind of starts with Kareem who was a really a, a huge brand in college. He played for the mm-hmm. premier collegiate team, UCLA, won four national championships. And at that point, his name was Lou Alcindor, and he changed his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as part of his conversion to the Muslim faith. And he was involved in um, the civil rights movement as well, along mm-hmm. with Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown. And so that obviously at that era would have turned off a lot of people toward the league as viewed as like a social justice cause. They would have uh, been turned off by his participation in the civil rights movement, but that's kind of when you start to see NBA player as mainstream celebrity, John. And mm-hmm. to kind of take it to winning time, it really takes off in the '80s with Magic Johnson, which I'm sure is a name that even a non-basketball fan would at least recognize. Right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'd heard of Magic Johnson even before I was into sports. You know, like names like that definitely appeared, um, kind of just in my consciousness people like charles barkley i know came later but magic johnson larry bird were kind of and then obviously michael jordan and we'll get to michael jordan but michael jordan i think is an interesting case all those players are an interesting case of beginning to look at how players have so profoundly shaped the image of the nba in a way that i think no other league can really equal yeah, no other league has been able to be as player-driven as opposed to, like, market-driven, like, mm. uh, location-driven. The NBA kind of picks up the baton in the 80s from the from Major League Baseball, 
which was, you know, Major League Baseball is in its golden era in the 60s and the 70s. In the 60s and the 70s, that's when you're getting Willie Mays, Hank Aaron. You've just, you know, the career of Jackie Robinson has just ended. This is this is literally the golden age of Major League Baseball when mm. the people getting the endorsement deals, the car deals, the TV commercials, those people are Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and the baseball players. And that that holds kind of even through to the 70s where people like that are still you know, Hank Aaron is chasing the home run record in the 70s. That's kind of the time of that. And then in the 80s, you get the premier rivalry in sports comes to the NBA, which is right. Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Those two people played in the national championship game in college the year before their draft. Magic Johnson beats Larry Bird in the national championship game while playing for Michigan State. They both get drafted number one, number two, and they're on two of the historic teams, the Lakers and the Celtics. And that rivalry and particularly Magic Johnson's personality and what the Showtime Lakers became kind of spurs the NBA into picking up that baton from baseball and becoming the premier entertainment at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that Um, because, you know, I was reading an ABC article that you sent me kind of talking about the struggles of the NBA in the 1970s Mm -hmm. and how, you know, you did have Jabbar there, but... You know, even with that, the league was really struggling in the public eye. I read there was a stat; it estimated that almost seventy-five percent of players in the NBA were using cocaine during the nineteen seventies at one point, which is like a staggering statistic. You know, and you know, obviously, like sports medicine was not the same as it is now, and so like people weren't taking as good care of their bodies just across the sports world. But still, like that is a genuinely staggering stat that I'm sure can't be anything close to that now with the levels of performance that are required from players but still you know it it took players like Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and then Michael Jordan appearing for for the league to really come from kind of that negative public perception into kind of the league of superstars that it became in the 80s moving into the 90s Um, so I'm just interested like if you can talk a little bit about how those players started sort of, I guess, shifting those perceptions and kind of taking over the public eye. Yeah, I think part of it is an understanding that American culture comes from New York and Los Angeles. Yeah. And when when one of your premier brands is in Los Angeles, and the reason why like HBO wants to do a show about the 80s Los Angeles Lakers and not the Milwaukee Bucks is because of what Jerry Buss did when he took over the Lakers and the way that he brought basketball into the mainstream, whether it's the idea of courtside seats, bringing mm-hmm. celebrities to the game. Like Jack Nicholson has been a um, has been a staple of the Los Angeles Lakers since the 80s. Literally, he's had courtside seats mm-hmm. since the 1980s. And he's bringing actors and celebrities and musicians into the, the, the games at sitting courtside. And that's blending modern American popular culture in the 80s with this idea of professional basketball. And then on top of that, Magic Johnson's just personal personality was a huge aspect. Mm-hmm. He was the most marketable player. He's more marketable than Jordan. He's more marketable than any baseball player. He was always smiling. He was always happy. He was happy to you know make the money, do as many endorsements as he wanted. He was being courted by every major sneaker company before he signed with Converse. And um, his marketability went a long way in bringing you know, the NBA to suburban America as a household name in the newspaper. Um, And then the third part, so we have the location Los Angeles, the personalities, and then the third is 
the rivalry, you know, the games actually become more interesting. You have the mm-hmm. Lakers and the Celtics, Bird and Magic, constantly in these battles. The championships they play against each other back and forth. And so you have a legitimate rivalry that is from the East Coast to the West Coast, Boston to Los Angeles. And so it's capturing the interest of fans literally all across America. So let's talk about then with that, you've got that rivalry that's expanding the league, right? And then Jordan enters the league in 83, 84. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that. How does, obviously Michael Jordan becomes basically the sports star of just like of the planet. Mm -hmm. You know, like how, obviously it has a massive impact on the league, but like talk a little bit about how that happened. Obviously like the last dance kind of chronicles it a lot, but you know, what do you think that did for building the NBA's, I guess, like profile as a sport? Well, I think one thing to remember is that, you know, Michael Jordan is almost in the NBA for a decade before he actually wins his first championship. Mm-hmm. And so for the first several years, he's just kind of viewed as a prolific scorer and great player. But he's not, you know, Jordan that he is today because he's not yeah. winning championships. He's, you know, he can't get past the Isaiah Thomas Detroit Pistons for like mm-hmm. six or seven years. And he, he, the first part of his career does overlap with magic at the Lakers. The Lakers are still the premier team when he enters the league. The right. Pistons are, or the Pistons are on the rise with Isaiah Thomas, and Jordan is kind of overshadowed in many ways for at least the first seven or eight years of his NBA career. What he does have going for him is obviously he has that moment in college where he hits the shot to win the national championship for UNC. The shot is still, you know, mm-hmm. that's a nationally televised moment. Everyone remembers it. That kind of people describe that as a, as the moment when Mike Jordan became Michael Jordan, or or just Jordan was kind of like that that shot, that moment in college. But again, he's he's in Chicago, which is not you know a top two market in the world at the time. He's competing against the 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 early the late era of the of the great Lakers teams. The Knicks are good. The Pistons are dominant. And what kind of gets Jordan over the top is the, the the addition of Phil Jackson as the coach and then the addition of Scottie Pippen because while in the 60s Bill Russell was the greatest player and while in the 80s you know Kareem and Magic were the greatest duo many people would argue that the 1990s Bulls was the first legitimate super team like four mm-hmm. or five of the best players in the sport on one team and on top of that they they went they go on this run of dominance that has obviously never been seen before in the NBA and has not been seen since, winning six championships in eight years. Right, which is staggering, obviously, and is rarely done in any sports league ever. Um, I think what's interesting about it, though, is you know, with those players, we also talked about the whole social justice thing, starting with Kareem, and famously, Michael Jordan kind of pushed back against that a little Republicans bit. Republicans buy sneakers, too. Yeah, um, as we've also talked about before on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, I think it you start to see in that era in my understanding of the league you know the 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 player focused perception of the NBA take another step up into the public eye right where where players are becoming more than the league you know Michael Jordan obviously you know became a source of apparel for you know the entire planet he became a celebrity in his own right in a way that few athletes ever have right which does wonders for you know for a sport where you know you're trying to market yourself globally michael jordan kind of became that star worldwide in a way that definitely exploded 
TV viewership that, you know, attracted fans from all around the world. And I think that's, you know, when we're talking about the way the NBA's brand has grown over the years, you know, even in a way that, you know, famous NFL players, you know, grab public attention, I think a really the best stars of the NBA attract a following that I don't feel like any NFL player ever has. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you brought up the social justice elements because there there, there are comparisons in mm-hmm. basketball just like there were in baseball before where you, you contrast Jackie Robinson to Willie Mays. Jackie Robinson was always pretty outspoken about race. He was pretty vocal about, about the, the struggles he went through. And Willie Mays was very quiet and reserved, and he believed that he would just let his game do the talking and just be as likable as he could, and that would be enough for him. Contrast that to Kareem, who was very outspoken, very likable, compared to, or who was very outspoken while also being likable, but who turned off a lot of people with his words. And you compare that to Magic, and then especially to Jordan, who takes the same approach as Willie Mays, where I'm just going to let my game do the talking, I'm not going to be outspoken, I'm not going to be political. My goal is to be liked by everyone, and that's not, you know, out of personal need to be liked, that's actually a business decision. So mm-hmm. that literally Republicans, white suburban America will buy Jordan shoes too for their kids. You know, which obviously would not have been the case if if he had been as that spoken about racial injustice or other things. And we're going to get to the modern view of the NBA on race here at the end. Right. But John, Jordan retires for the first time and goes plays baseball. Comes back, wins three more championships. Retires again. Ridiculous. Then comes back again <laughs> for the Wizards. But you know, he comes back a couple, you know, several different times. But by 2003, MJ's out of the picture. Right. The the league has to move on post Jordan. Commissioner David Stern has to figure out what to do with the league. And for about really five or six years, they really, really struggled to do so. (laughs) Michael Jordan has left such a big hole that no other player, be it young Kobe Bryant, be it Allen Iverson, are able to fill that entertainment gap, that celebrity gap, Mm -hmm. that cult of personality that Jordan developed. And what we see instead is arguably the worst era in the history of the National Basketball Association in the early 2000s. Right, which I also didn't know very much about until I started reading up on it. I think we should talk a little bit about the Malice at the Palace incident, because uh, that's a, incredibly fun. I mean, imagine a fight that had nine players suspended for like something like 140 games uh, in total. Um, the NBA, I guess apparently in the 2000s, you know, Jordan leaves and all of a sudden you have a league that's starting to get a reputation as kind of like a, a nasty fighting league. And Stern suddenly had a problem on his hands. Yeah. So, I mean, it's worth saying that the game was more physical in the 80s and the 90s than it was today. Like, right. it's not like, you know, it's not like, oh, it was it was the same NBA as it is today. Then all of a sudden in the 2000s, people started fighting. Like, no, the the level of physicality in the 80s and the 90s that people like Jordan went through was far worse than it is now. But it was considered tough without being dirty. In the early 2000s, it, it becomes an issue where there are legitimate like brawls and fistfights. And not just the Mouse of the Palace, but it's happening multiple times. If the Mouse of the Palace was just a one-off thing, maybe mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been as big of a deal as it was. But it was the culmination of a few years of these kind of issues. The Mouse in the Palace is between the Pacers and the, and the uh, Pistons. It is in the Palace, which is the the home of Detroit, in Auburn Hills, Michigan, and it is the most infamous brawl in in really sports history. It involves mostly Ben Wallace and Ron Artest, who kind of start the fight. 
other players get involved, and then the fight goes into the stands, and you see Ron Artest punching fans. You know, it, it's just it's unfathomable that that could happen today. You know, today right. Kyrie Irving gets fined fifty thousand dollars for making a gesture toward a fan in the mm-hmm. playoffs. Ron Artest literally went up and started punching and fighting the fans, and the NBA realizes we have a massive problem on their on their hands, a, an imaging issue. They're viewed as a thug league. Uh, literally is the way that they describe it. And so they do several things. First off, they stop showing live NBA in the 2000s. They start showing games on tape delay because they're so concerned that these issues are going to be broadcast across America. And Mm -hmm. second, to fix their image, David Stern institutes a dress code for NBA players, which if you know the NBA today is really, really funny to think about. Mm -hmm. He dictates that all players wear business casual and conservative attire when they're arriving, departing on the bench, and participating in interviews. It bans any semblance of modern hip-hop culture. No jerseys, no jeans, no hats, no do-rags, no t-shirts, no jewelry, no sneakers, no like Timberland boots or anything like that. All of that is is explicitly banned. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to create, you know, just uh, they're trying to for lack of a better word, whitewash the the issues of the league by making the players conform to what they believe society will deem acceptable. And not just society, but people who want to watch the games to give the fans a non-confrontational, enjoyable, conservative sporting experience in the same way that baseball has tried to do for a long time. If you, you know, the Yankees actually still have a a hair code Mm -hmm. and, you know, in in Major League I didn't realize that until like a couple years ago. Yeah. But... That all starts to change when the NBA kind of comes into its second second great era, which to me starts in 2009 with the Lakers and Celtics kind of being back at it with Kobe Bryant at the height of his era. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then that kind of transitions into the NBA that I know best, which I'll call the LeBron James era of basketball. Right. Yeah, the LeBron era is the only era of basketball that I'm, like, actually familiar with, you know. And I think it's interesting to note, you know, LeBron is a very different – star than Michael Jordan was. Um, you know, when you have like the GOAT debate about whether LeBron or MJ was better, you know, that they are the two players that people usually put up in that battle. But they're very different players. They're very especially in their public perception. You know, I I don't feel like LeBron is exactly at the same level that MJ was in terms of public persona. But he is much more outspoken about social issues than MJ was, which is you know, in a way, much more emblematic of the modern world we live in. You know, LeBron is very much the star of the past, you know, couple, I guess, 10 years or so of the NBA in a way that I think matches up with the state of American society and the way that the NBA has come to be perceived over the last decade or so. Yeah, I mean, let's I want to talk about a few different ways that that I think, the, especially the social justice and the the dress code have changed in the last few days, kind of as an emblematic, mm-hmm. both as examples of the way that the NBA has gone into culture. Let me just do the dress code first. While the dress code still technically that I that I explained, while that dress code technically does still exist, mm-hmm. when Adam Silver became commissioner, it became more lenient. It kind of went away. It's now kind of virtually non-existent. Um, the dress code kind of stated that when a player was not playing, they had to be dressed like a coach which used to mean like a suit because coaches mm-hmm. wore suits. And when the NBA went into the bubble at Disney World during COVID, now coaches wear long sleeve t-shirts and like, like quarter zips. Like the right. dress, and that's been the case in many sports, but in you know 
coaches in, in the NBA aren't even wearing suits anymore. So the whole thing has become more lenient. And that has introduced the NBA into, and we've talked about this before, but the, the intersection between the NBA and fashion has become a huge part of their development in pop culture. And that's something that mm-hmm. I know you talked about, John, when we did our, our, our topic on fashion and, and sports. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was reading an article in Rolling Stone about how even the fact that players have been kind of like forced into dressing up a little bit more during that kind of earlier phase when, uh, around when the, the rule was introduced meant that basketball players actually started kind of dipping into like higher end fashion a lot more and actually like kind of setting some of the fashion trends that, you know, we see now more and more. And as the rules have relaxed more, you know, you still see players that, you know, have their own fashion lines. Obviously, you know, shoes are obviously a huge part of that. Um, And it's interesting. I don't I'm not like by any means a fashion expert, but I know that basketball players, you know, play a huge role in all of that. Soccer players obviously do, as we've talked about. Um, The Jordan brand remains one of the most preeminent, you know, streetwear brands around, you know, years after Michael Jordan retired and, you know, players are still wearing all that stuff. So I think it's I think it's interesting to see how in a way like few other industries, there's such a strong connection between the sports and fashion worlds because of, I guess, the respect that those players have within those communities. Yeah, we've I mean, we've come a long way from the NBA trying to kind of hide players individual expression with Mm -hmm. with dress to now the nba has an official hashtag called nba red carpet that the nba twitter account uses to to highlight the fashion of the players as they walk into the to the games where where the tunnel to the locker room has become a literal fashion runway for players Mm -hmm. yeah i think i think that i think one of the most interesting things about the nba's development over the last decade or so has been that the league has really leaned into, like you're saying, the individual style and individual brands of the players in a way that almost no other league has. Um, over the last decade, the NBA TV ratings, have, as we've talked about, have declined pretty seriously. Um, people have given a lot of reasons for that. People have said that you know social justice issues are not popular uh, among TV viewers. But what's interesting is even though all that's true, the NBA on all of its social media platforms outpaces basically every other league around the world. Uh, I was reading a Forbes article that's you know a couple years old, so these stats aren't even current. But you know the NBA had more followers on TikTok than basically any other sports organization or athlete in 2020, which it had more engagement, had more video views than every other sports league around and every other athlete and you know that kind of indicates that they're doing something right in that i guess generation right and in a younger generation you know that maybe is less interested in watching tv the nba marketing itself both with social media clips and also with you know accentuating players personalities instead of trying to kind of decrease that it's actually leaned into increasing that and it is finding it has found a formula that is actually engaging young viewers in the places that they're at in a way that no other league has, I think, genuinely because of the way it approaches basically marketing players. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. I think one thing that I want to just talk about the present day as we kind of wind down is two things. First off, the actual like 
the, the actual product on the on the court today. Mm-hmm. And then we'll end on the social justice part, which I think is the most important part. But yeah. the NBA today is, is really, like I said, in a second golden era, like as far as excitement, quality of players, greatness of, of games. You know, if you want great dunks, can I introduce you to the, to the 2010s Lob City team with DeAndre Jordan and Blake Griffin and Chris Paul? Do you want do you want a three-point shooting barrage? Have you ever heard of the Splash Brothers in Golden State? Mm-hmm. Do you want to see the single greatest one-man show since Michael Jordan? Have you have you heard of LeBron James? You know, the quality no. of play right now is so high. Um, I think there are two things I want to mention. First off, the while, while some people do bemoan the, the lack of physicality in the modern NBA compared to what I mentioned in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, it has, the lack of physicality has created more scoring and scoring is exciting, and I think that's a big deal. And the second part is uh, the positionless nature of the modern NBA, where in the same season, LeBron James plays point guard to start a game, and he also plays center to start a game, where you can have a center named Joel Embiid who shoots 40% from three and hits setback three-pointers like a point guard, and you have a point guard in Ben Simmons who is six feet 11 and that's looks like large. a center but plays point guard. So... I think the positionless nature of the modern NBA has, has generated a level of excitement. The scoring is up. The athleticism is up. And I think the quality of the sport is as high as it has ever been. And I think top to bottom, this is the best version of basketball that has ever existed. Mm-hmm. It's a really, obviously, Steph Curry, though maybe not a star on the same level as some of the names we've mentioned. The way he his shooting has changed the league. I think also does a lot for the product in that shots from deep are also something that just shots from increasing increasing depth on the court are something that you know brings in I think a lot of fans and is just an interesting part of the game that doesn't seem like it was there before as much. Yeah, I think that yeah the logo threes right the mm-hmm. not just at the three point line but like six or seven feet behind the line is yeah it's it's, it's as exciting as the sport can be. John, I want to kind of wrap it down by talking about something we've mentioned, which is just the civil rights and social issues elements of the NBA. It kind of started with, you know, in the 50s and 60s, given the the culture at the time, there was no expression of civil rights versus the 70s and 80s where Kareem was allowed to speak, but it wasn't certainly something that the league was supporting. They might have been apathetic to letting Kareem talk, but he, he did. Jordan chose to remain silent. But now... It's not just that players are speaking out, but the NBA has branded themselves as a social justice league. And that has had good and some very bad and hypocritical reactions to it um, or implications from it. Mm -hmm. And I think, we know, we talked a lot about George Floyd when that happened in the summer of 2020. Um, Mm -hmm. We had, had, I thought, a really interesting and good podcast about that right after. But one of the ongoing implications we saw was that the NBA – in the bubble in Miami in, uh, in Disney World took it very seriously. You know, they painted the court with Black Lives Matter. Players were allowed to change their jersey. This was not individual player decisions. These were decisions that the entire league was making, with Adam mm-hmm. Silver being one of the most player-friendly and progressive commissioners we've ever seen in sports. And so the league has become, in many ways, a league committed and unified in combating racial injustice. Right. And we see that, you know, that I don't think it's a coincidence that a generation like ours that is deeply tied into those issues would gravitate toward a league that markets itself that way. You know, if you see you see the 
immense amount of young following clearly that the NBA has on an app like TikTok, right? Like we talked about where the majority or not, not even necessarily statistically majority, but the largest percentage of users are, you know, around our age in their twenties and teens, you know, that clearly appeals to that audience, you know, and it's clear that it also is something that the players take very seriously, you know? So I think on, it's both, I think from the players side of things, I think it is a, it's a very genuine movement as we've talked about from the league's perspective at times, it can, you know, there's both good things about it and also hypocritical things about it where, you know, we don't ever really know how much of these things are business decisions by the league to kind of manage their perception, you know, and when we see, you know, we've touched on the China situation numerous times on this podcast. Uh, when you when you look at that situation and the fact that the NBA hasn't spoken up about it, but it is willing to talk about issues in America, you know, it that def- definitely raises questions to me of, okay, well, where are the why are certain things being prioritized over other things when money is involved? Yeah, I think, you know, it. you can't have this conversation without talking about the hypocrisy in the NBA's right. stance on social justice, where um, talking about specifically race and, you know, police brutality toward African-Americans, specifically African-American males in America, is something that is welcomed and, you know, uh, we, 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 the NBA welcomes that, but if you talk about the uh, plight of, for example, the Uyghurs in China, uh, a, a, a genocide taking place, the reaction by many in the NBA is very different. Or and, even Hong Kong in the case yeah, of Daryl Morey. Right. Uh, I think that's the best example, right? Because there was this whole thing with LeBron, you know, with Laura Ingram telling LeBron to shut up and dribble. And then LeBron releases his organization called More Than an Athlete and says, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to talk. And I think he's almost universally applauded for that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a great, you know, I think his response was good. Obviously, everyone understands his right as far as he educates himself and wants to speak, he can. But when Daryl Morey releases a tweet in support of Hong Kong, LeBron James quite literally tells Daryl Morey to shut up and make trades. Mm-hmm. You know, he says that that Daryl Morey was, quote, like not educated on the situation, which mm-hmm. uh, which, which to, <laughs> to me indicated LeBron's lack of education on the topic. Um, and... Yeah, it's just been it's been interesting how, and this is not an NBA problem. Disney has the same problem. Other corporations have the same problem. But the the lack of sensitivity to China when the NBA knows that they can make millions and billions of dollars in China, so they let China do what they want. The way that you know movies will, movie companies today will will literally change their content while trying to make a social justice statement here in America. Will edit out content so that they can be in China, like Fantastic mm-hmm. Beasts the newest movie edited out six seconds of its movie for China so that they could be released there. And, you know, the whole thing is hypocritical and it's wrong. And we, we talked about the minority owner for the Warriors saying that the, the, the plight of the Uyghurs was not above his threshold of concern (laughs) or the, the Brooklyn Nets owner, Joseph Tsai, who is, is a Chinese, is a uh, Chinese person who, uh, you know, behind the scenes was a big part of, you know, trying to get Daryl Morey, uh, punished for for what he said about Hong Kong, the 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 double standard and the competing interests when it comes to international relations for the NBA is is a big concern. Right. Yeah, and I think you know that doesn't knock or take away necessarily from I think the positive things that you know I think the NBA being a voice for the Black American community I think is really important. Um, but I think it is it is important to note you know that. 
you know, even if many of the players have good intentions, you know, I often don't trust the brand management of leagues as a whole uh, because leagues ultimately, you know, as we see in most kind of circumstances with commissioners, like we talked about recently, are usually out to kind of defend their image. And that often means in the, this current day and age that you take the side of social justice, right? So, you know, there's nothing wrong with supporting social justice, but you should be consistent about it. And I think that's kind of, that kind of puts us at the state of the NBA. Yeah, I would just briefly say, like, I didn't mean to say that just because LeBron is wrong about China means he's wrong about Black Lives no, Matter. No, like, like it, yeah. one thing does not negate the other, but it does speak to, you know, what, what a specific interest to one person doesn't mean that they're educated on all things. And the mm-hmm. league, while they, while they attempt to be a social justice league, really are universally a social justice league in one area. There are individuals right. doing better. Inez Freedom, formerly Inez mm-hmm. Cantor, is is a is a consistent and really quite a remarkable human being um, in the way that he views all social justice issues, and Truly. he has been a, a consistent example to the rest of the NBA. And even he's been attacked by LeBron, mm-hmm. uh, and LeBron is clearly wrong in those situations. And um, you know, I think the league, the, you know, they'll continue to develop and evolve, but I think. Specifically, China will always be an issue for for these kind of corporations just because of the financial interests. And I think right, which I think I do think it's ironic that China then barred the NBA after all the after all those shows. China barred the NBA from playing in China, which I think is you know maybe a little bit of poetic justice in that regard. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think <laughs> that was a really good overview we did, um, and that brings us to the 2022 NBA playoffs, which are in Here full swing. And, um, you know, really, I think this was super interesting and super informative. I think that it's topical, too, because of something like Winning Time, mm-hmm. uh, because of the, the book I highly recommend, Blood in the Garden, uh, the book about the 1990s Knicks and talking about the era of physicality, literally, you know, on a nightly basis, blood being shed on the court because of how mm-hmm. physical the game was. Um, this was a great conversation. I'm looking forward to the rest of these uh NBA playoffs, John. I know we're we're short on time. I'm picking the Warriors and the Celtics to meet in the finals with the Warriors winning. Do you have any thoughts on the NBA? I'm going to go with your prediction. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I trust your opinion more than mine. All right, that's good. And I hope that you all are also enjoying the playoffs. Let us know if you have any thoughts about about the games, about the matchups, about really anything we've talked about today. If you have any questions about any area of the NBA, we're welcome to, to take those next week. Also, if you have any topic ideas for the future, we'd love to hear from you about other things that we could discuss. We're on social media where you can interact with us. You can also uh, give us a rating and review on the podcast uh, with your question on Apple Podcasts. Go ahead and subscribe so that you can find us in your feed every week when we release. John, do you have any final thoughts for the uh, for the listeners before we get on out of here? You guys should go watch Giannis's dad joke on whatever social media you use that he did in a press conference recently because it made me happy. That's Yana, yeah, his he brought a, he literally brought he he walked up to the podium with a book that's as oh, dad says dad jokes. <laughs> Giannis Antetokounmpo <laughs> is living his best life. Giannis is my NBA king. And do you, that's, a, that's do you want to leave us here. on your favorite dad joke, John? I can't think of one off the top of my head right now. Okay, well, we'll, 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 we'll that'll be for next week. We'll have you. That'll be there. for next week. We're going to introduce one. We're going to start our episode with a dad joke next all right. week. All right, no problem. <laughs> well, guys, until next week, we hope you all continue to be well and be safe, and we will talk to you later. All right, cheers, guys.